0: Welcome to episode 153 of This Week in Linux, your weekly source for Linux news. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tannell. If you're new to the show, this is a podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. Coming up on this week's episode, we've got a new announcement from the Destination Linux Network that I am so excited to let you know about. In distro news, we've got new releases from Alma Linux OS, Laka, and a new floppy-related distro. We've got some legal news to discuss this week because Audacity is back in the news with some more controversial stuff going on. And a user was informed that by their ISP that apparently downloading Ubuntu is somehow bad. In security news, we're going to talk about Firefox's new security architecture, Firefox Fission. And apparently the FBI is going to begin sharing breach and password data with the public. I'll let you know what that's all about as we get into the show, because we have that and so much more coming up right now on this week's episode of Twill, your weekly source for Linux good news. (music) A first in the show this week is the Fedora podcast is back with the Vengeance. Okay, not with the vengeance, is that there's a lot of new changes and improvements to this season, such as an addition to the show with a new host, that being Grayson joining Edward to discuss all things Fedora. Uh, Grayson is a Fedora Linux user and a member of the Fedora and DLN communities. And to kick off season two, they talked with Ben Cotton, the Fedora program manager who edits the blog and Fedora magazine. Plus, Marie Norton joined them to discuss Nest 2021 and the Fedora 34 release party. I'm also excited to let you know that in addition to the return, the Fedora podcast has joined the destination Linux network as a collaborative effort to spread the word about all things Fedora for those unfamiliar destination Linux network or DLN is a media network designed to bring passionate creators to promote open source and Linux. So because of this, DLN is the perfect fit for the Fedora podcast. And I know I might be slightly biased about this news, but I'm incredibly excited to work with Fedora in making the new season of the Fedora podcast a huge success. For those who might have never listened to the intro of this show somehow, because I say it every week, This Week in Linux is a pr- is a proud member of the Destination Linux Network. So on behalf of DLN and the DLN community, welcome to the family. And if you want to check out the Fedora podcast, you'll find links to the first episode of Season 2 In the show notes, we've got some really interesting news from the Alma Linux team. If you're not familiar, Alma Linux OS is an open source community driven project that intends to fill the gap left by the restructuring of CentOS. So Alma Linux OS is a one to one binary compatible fork of RHEL 8, and it's built by the community in addition with Cloud Linux. This week, we're going to be discussing the release of AlmaLinux OS 8.4. The This is a big change. There's a lot of changes in this, but it's really interesting because AlmaLinux OS 8.4 comes out right after RHEL 8.4, which is definitely unheard of in terms of the CentOS world and the rebuild world of... So this is really interesting, and there's a, a lot of changes. But the biggest change you'll notice is that the the number one most requested feature of Secure Boot is now fully supported in this release, as well as a new devel repo or developer repo, and some new module streams and compiler updates and that sort of stuff, as well as the addition of support for the Open SCap support, which stands for Security Content Automation Protocol which is a U.S. standard maintained by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST. And the OpenSCAP project is a collection of open source tools for implementing and enforcing this kind of standard for security. So this is really interesting news from Alma Linux because, as you may recall, last week we discussed the release of RHEL 8.4, and that's, you know, that's a huge thing because in just about a week's time the red hat enterprise linux 8.4 releasing we now have alma linux 8.4 and this may not seem like a big deal but i can assure you this is huge and it's kind of proof that this new structure for rails centos and rebuilds is ultimately a good thing because centos linux was very very slow to update and often well oftentimes it would require users to wait months in fact but since CentOS Stream is in this position, it is now, Rebuilds can work with CentOS upstream to make improvements and keep up with the development much, much faster and even contribute to that development. I'd argue this is a win-win for all parties involved, which is a controversial statement, I know. But you know what? I, I, I think I need to make a, a specific video about this, and that is coming soon in an in-depth look at a new documentary called Keeping It Rail, The CentOS Story. Okay. I might not actually call it that, but I do I do like the name. It, it does sound good. It has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? If you'd like to learn more about Alma Linux, links in the show notes. One of the last things you may expect to receive a DMCA notice on is for downloading a Linux distribution. Linux distros are fe- freely available in all sorts of different downloading methods, including Torrents. Yet somehow Xfinity, a internet service company by Comcast, has Against Expectations issued a DMCA notice to one of their subscribers for downloading Ubuntu 2004.2 LTS ISO file. Now the subscriber posted on Reddit the notice that was sent to them and it does seem off-putting both in the official nature of it but also in the fact that it isn't even slightly illegal to download Ubuntu or any Linux distribution through torrents. But Xfinity send, sending a DMCA notice, that does make it kind of confusing. So it was interesting to see that being, pu- being uh, released on Reddit. The notice mentions that the responsible party for notifying the copyright infringement is labeled as ops, OPSEC online anti-piracy. Now the notice writes, uh, We have received a notification by a copyright owner or its authorized agent reporting an alleged infringement on, of one or more copyrighted works made on or over the Xfinity internet service. Now, this is likely nothing not a decision made by Comcast or slash Xfinity. Just, it's just more of them forwarding along the notice and not directly involved in the decision being made to send it. Now, what's interesting is about the, the OPSEC online anti-piracy service. So this is a service made by the company OPSEC Security, and they have issued a response. Actually, they've issued a couple of responses. One of the responses was posted to Twitter and then quickly deleted. Well, because it kind of said some weird stuff that was confusing. And then they made a new one that was more simplified. And tweeted that. So first of all, let's talk about the first response they gave. So OPSEC Security responded with the first one saying, OPSEC Security's DMCA notice sending program was spoofed on May 26, 2021 by unknown parties across multiple streaming platforms. The content in question all appears to be Ubuntu Linux ISO. We have incontrovertible evidence that proves these DMCA notices were not perpetuated by or originated with the OPSEC Security. OPSEC's enforcement efforts are occasionally spoofed by third parties in an attempt to damage OPSEC's reputation. These attempts are easily identifiable and easily disproven. Now, that's a strong a lot of strong statements in there saying that there's incontrovertible evidence and saying that it's been they that they know it has been spoofed before and that sort of issue, and also saying that this is one of the examples. But then they deleted that tweet and made a new tweet saying OPSEC security has been made aware of report that a DMCA notice was sent to a US-based ISP under that referred to an ISO image of a Linux distribution. It was purported to have been issued by OPSEC security. We can categorically state that OPSEC security had nothing to do with this matter. Now, this is interesting and of course it creates many questions. If OPSEC Security had nothing to do with it, why did Xfinity have it listed in the notice? Um, how did this even happen at all? Was it spoofed? Was it not? If the first tweet says incontrovertible evidence, what is that evidence? Uh, if and also, if they are aware that their service can be spoofed, shouldn't they fix that I and mean, having have conversations with the ISPs that make that not possible? I I don't know. And also, who came up with the name OPSEC Security? And are they aware that OPSEC already means Operation Security, so their name is Operation Security Security? We may never know the answer to some of these questions, if not all of them. I can only imagine that the name thing was from the Department of Redundancy Department. But with that said, if you'd like to check out the show notes, you can find links in the show notes. Up next in the show is everyone's favorite legal news section, and we're going to be talking about Audacity having announced that they're going to be introducing a CLA to the project, or planning to, at least. Now, this is currently in discussion with the community, and if you're not familiar, a CLA is a Contributor License Agreement, and it's um, kind of a controversial move, let's say that. So... Audacity is talking about adding a CLA to the project, and that means uh, different types of things depending on the different type of CLA. Because there's there's different levels of a CLA. There's actually some CLAs that are you know beloved by the community, and others that are not so much. So let's talk about more specifics, and we're going to break it down as much as possible. But before we get into that, hashtag I am not a lawyer, therefore. My opinion and my, my interpretation and perspective of this sort of thing could be wrong. And if it, if it is, I uh, would suggest that you take it as a grain of salt or a mountain of salt in the context of this. But I will do my best. So here we go. First of all, we're going to be doing a lot of quotes. So just to clarify that again, a lot of quotes. Starting off with, Audacity's source code is currently released under the GNU General Public License Version 2, or GPLv2. We intend to update the license to GPLv3 to enable support for new technologies not compatible with GPLv2, i.e. VST3, which is compatible with GPLv3. Now, this is interesting to because there's a difference between a GPLv2, GPLv2+, plus and also other variations. So there's other GPL variations, but we're talking about these particular ones because they state that they're wanting to do this CLA because that allows them to change from GPL v2 to v3. However, based on the research of the live chat during the live recording of this show, we found out that it is based, that is currently licensed as GPL v2 plus or GPL v2 or later. Which means that they don't have to relicense to GPL v3 in order to have compatibility with VST3, because the or later or the plus factor essentially means that everything, every version of GPL after the v2 is also compatible with these, this this declaration of the plus part or the or later part. So, if you say GPL v2 or later. It also means V3 and V4 and V5 if there's ever one of those. You know, it it covers that as well. So that particular part is a little bit odd because it's not necessary for the reason of doing a CLA. So in the perspective and interpretation that I have not a lawyer, moving on. They also state that although we may choose any license for the code that we have written ourselves, we do not have the ability when it comes to code written by additional contributors. The purpose of the CLA is to provide future flexibility in altering, such as up-licensing or dual-licensing, for the entire Audacity project, just the par- not just the parts of the code that we have written ourselves. Now, this is an interesting perspective because there are some companies and projects who do have CLAs for this particular purpose because the uh, there are some issues for especially projects that are very old, like Audacity. I mean, audacity has been around for over 20 years, so it has a long history of uh, you know con- contributions from variety of different people all sorts of things that, but creates an issue, maybe potentially getting them to give a permission to do relicensing or doing exceptions and that sort of stuff. We'll get to an exception topic in the, in the future, but there is a sit in, I mean, not in the future, but in a second, but there's a, a factor of, if you want to change a license, you have to have every contributor who has ever contributed code that you are using agree to the change or agree to a clause being added or whatever. So, In the context, if they wanted to change from GPL to MPL, then they would have to have an agreement from all the contributors who are working on the particular project or the code that is applicable to do so. So if, for example, this is a very old project, if some of the people are no longer available for whatever reason, there could be an issue where you couldn't even ask them for permission. So that creates a problem of... If you run into that, you would have to remove the code or you'd have to rewrite the code yourself to replace the feature. Now, some projects would do that rewrite or the removal. Uh, in this case, they're asking for permission. So it depends on what they get permission for and what they don't, whether they have to make adjustments to the code itself. But there is worth. it is worth noting that because Audacity is very old of a project, there could be times where it'd be hard to get in touch with some of the developers if not impossible. So, moving on. They say that we also wish to make Audacity available to everyone, which means releasing it on all platforms and through as many distribution channels as possible. Unfortunately, some platforms have policies or technical processes that make it difficult or impossible for Audacity to exist on them, while it is licensed solely under GPL, V2, or V3. Apple's App Store on iOS and macOS is an example of this which is the reason the VLC media player was removed from the store back in 2011. VLC re- returned to the store later, but not under the GPL. Now, there's a little bit of a nuance there to that statement, but we'll talk about it for a second. The, that This is true. If you have a license that is not compatible with a platform, you have to make adjustments, whether that's an exception to the rule or whether that's uh, relicensing or adding an additional license and that sort of stuff that is compatible Those are different options you can take. In the case of VLC, they did go back into the store, not under the GPL, but under the MPL. However, they were also under the GPL. So it's a dual license in that context. So the VLC code for the iOS version is GPL V2 or later and MPL V2, which means the MPL makes it more compatible with the Apple App Store platform. So... It is a little bit of a nuance to say that it's not under the GPL, but it is kind of under the GPL, it's just also licensed under that. So the, the app store could choose to just use the MPL in addition, instead of using the G, the GPL version. So, uh, And also there are some exceptions that have been made by other projects. For example, NextCloud is in the Apple's app store, under a GPL license, but they did so by getting an agreement with all the developers to create an exception to make it okay. So they don't have a CLA, but they uh, and they are on GPL, but they have an exception specifically for that. Now, this is a, something that is possible because Nextcloud is a very young project, and in context of Audacity, it would be very difficult to do that. Of course, of how many developers have been over the years, and also how long that's been. It's been a project it creates a lot of complications. So an exception might not be practical in this case, but it is interesting that there are ways to do this without doing a full CLA. Now they go on to say that the CLA provides the ability to release audacity under multiple licenses, which will enable us to to release on the app store while still making the code available under GPL. This will ensure that even wider audiences is available is able to appreciate the wonderful piece of open source software. That is audacity. Now, it is fantastic for more and more people to have access to using audacity, but it's not necessarily needed to do a CLA to get this. For example, with the app store, you can just do a dual license with MPL, and that's also true with other pieces around this kind of thing. And I'll have links in the show notes for all sorts of stuff related to this, not only the the uh the CLA uh, GitHub issue related to this but also some links related to like the VLC thing we talked about and and so on because I do think it's interesting uh, in terms of like the complexity of this stuff but as a person who is not a lawyer I would rather you check it out yourself and make up your own mind about this particular topic than me providing a full opinion on this topic because it is a lot but there is something that's interesting based on uh, comments that were on the GitHub issue because in this announcement, they also stated that they wanted to, uh, they said that they we will likely offer separate cloud services that Audacity users can take advantage of if they choose to. Now, this implies that it's going to be proprietary, but they don't use the word proprietary necessarily, but having a separate cloud service, even if it's proprietary, can already be done under GPL. You don't need to have a CLA in order to do that because uh, there's a difference between the AGPL and the GPL. The AGPL essentially means that the software, the software that is running the server stuff or the services, the cloud services, would have to be open, but with a GPL, not necessarily. So that's why there's a difference between the GPL and the AGPL, depending on the perspective of like where the code is being used. Uh, there's also LGPL, but we're not going to go into the big details about that sort of stuff. But just to say that the CLA is not needed for that particular piece either. So this is very interesting. But again, not a lawyer, so it's safe to say that my comments should be taken with a mountain of salt, as I said. However, the timing of this happening is not going to sit well with a lot of people. So I guess, I mean, because it came right after the telemetry thing that we talked about previously on this show and so on. So I guess we'll see what happens. There's a lot to dig in if you want to find out more about this, but there are some, you know, there are some valid reasons to do a CLA uh, for example, the way that Mozilla's CLA works is really nice because it's a, basically it's an agreement on both sides to say that this code will always be MPL. It will always be public code. That approach makes sense. There's also agreements that you can have that, uh, for example, the FSF has an assi- uh, a copyright assignment thing where you agree to give them control of the copyright so it's guaranteed to always be public code and that sort of stuff. So it's a different... Type of it's not really a CLA, it's a different thing, but overall, there are ways of doing it that allow you to create uh, licenses that are, um, you know, more platform relevant and that sort of stuff. And they could just do an agreement request to also add MPL rather than doing a full CLA of relicensing in a variety of different ways and whatever. So, you know, there are lots of different nuances here to this topic. And if you'd like to learn more about this, you'll find a lot of links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean and their app platform. DigitalOcean's app platform is a service to build modern cloud-native apps. What it does, it allows you to be able to build, deploy, and manage these apps on their platform and allow you to do, well... Let them handle all the infrastructure because it, basically you point your GitHub or your GitLab repository to the app platform and it handles the heavy lifting for you. Basically, it, runs, it manages the app runtimes, it manages the dependencies, it also creates, manages and renews SSL certificates as well as protects against from DDoS attacks so you can just write the code you want to write and deploy it on their infrastructure, which is just fantastic. And it supports multiple different types of languages. So you could use Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, and it also has support for static sites, Docker, and other container images. So there's a lot of great value for using the app platform, but I think one of the greatest things is that you can run the code to little with no customization of your code because it uses open cloud native standards and automatically analyzes your code, creates containers for that code, and runs them on Kubernetes clusters. So, you get to it basically manages all the stuff for you and analyzes the code to be able to create stuff to run it on the platform, which is just awesome. As a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free, actually better than free, because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's app platform. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Inkscape is one of those applications that is in the forefront of graphics in the open source world and with good reason. Inkscape is an open source vector graphics application that acts as an alternative to proprietary options like Adobe's Illustrator for example. And I welcome any chance that I can talk about Inkscape because they have been making huge improvements to the software in recent years and today we're going to be talking about the release of Inkscape 1.1. The Version number of 1.1 doesn't suggest a big change from 1.0, but I'm glad to say this is a major release for Inkscape that brings many fresh new features and new functionality. First of all, we're going to talk about just a few of the highlights because there are quite a bit of things that were changed, but we're just going to focus on some of the big stuff. So, for example... There's a new welcome dialog where the look of Inkscape can be selected upon launching as well as some choices for the new document size or file to open or that sort of stuff are available when you launch Inkscape. Now, there's also been some new improvements to the node tool. So for example, it's now possible to copy, cut and paste parts of a path with the node tool, which is awesome because it allows you to manipulate the path nodes of a particular object very quickly and easily by just copying from one, uh, one object to another. And that is fantastic. it opens up a lot of different possibilities. Uh, In addition to that, they also have a a new uh, rewritten dialogue docking system, which basically means that uh, Inkscape's uh, dialogue docks allow you to move them on different sides of the screen so that you can have more customization of how you lay out the interface, which is really cool. And, in addition to that, they've also had new uh, outline overlay mode that displays object outlines while also showing their real colors. Now, this is nice for identifying objects on the canvas more efficiently. And another thing that I want to talk about is something that is just fantastic, and I think every application should have it, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more in deep in detail in another topic later on, but that is the command palette has been added to Inkscape. Now, what this means is that you hit a key on your keyboard, in this case, the uh, shift and then the question mark key and that will activate the command palette. And what this does, it allows you to search and use many functions without having to use any keyboard shortcuts or going through the menus or using your mouse. You just activate the uh, the command palette and just start typing what you want to do. And then you can select and perform the action that you want to do it. It's very, very awesome. I'll demonstrate it in another topic later on. So be sure to stick on for that. But This is just a fantastic feature that I'm really excited to see in Inkscape. And I think every application should consider adding a feature like this because it adds so much more like power user friendly. Is that a thing? Power user friendly? I don't know. We're going to go with it because it just adds so much more uh, friendliness for power users experiences and doing so many different customizations and stuff like that. really nice to see that. They're also making improvements to the PNG export dialogue because there is for a long time, there was a way where you had to remember to click the export button inside of the PNG export dialogue in addition to the saving thing. And that was kind of annoying to some people, but now you no longer have to do that, which is awesome. Uh, They've also improved. It's making it possible to export uh, JPEG, TIFF, PNGs and WebP directly from Inkscape which is very nice as well as making some additions to the way you manage and update different extensions which they're doing a it's it's currently in beta right now but they're making the extension manager which is always fantastic to see. So, if you have never tried out Inkscape and are interested in any kind of vectorized graphics, Inkscape is a fantastic open source tool for that. So be sure to check out the links below for the latest release of Inkscape 1.1. I've been a fan of Firefox web browser for a very long time. I've been using it for I don't know how many years, but before it was called Firefox, so there's that, however long that's been. Uh, Firefox has so many great features that makes it my preferred web browser, such as the container tabs or the really awesome bookmark system, but... There is one feature that has been missing that users of other browsers tend to mention when we compare browsers and that sort of stuff. And I'm talking about process isolation or tab isolation in some browsers. So, process isolation is a security feature which isolates the process of various tabs so that it stops one tab from getting data from another tab. Firefox has announced their new Fission system, which is for site isolation. Now this is the key piece here is that site isolation is not tab isolation because it's arguably better depending on your perspective. It's arguably better. So Firefox fission isolates based on the domain of the website, which also means if a website has iframes embedding, making it multiple domains inside of the same tab, it creates isolation for each of those domains. This is arguably a more secure structure than the tab isolation architecture. Now, I'm not a security expert, so I'm not giving an opinion on this particular topic saying that it is better. I just think I wanted to cover it because I think it's really cool to see Firefox do this kind of thing. And it's also something that I have for a long time had to admit that Firefox didn't do as well as other browsers. And in this case, it's arguably even better than those at their structures. So I'm really happy to see that. So this is a very welcome feature, at least in my opinion anyway, Uh, but again, I'm not Uh, security expert. So you and I want to check it out. The blog post I'll have linked in the show notes so you can check out the full diagram of how it all works because it is really interesting, but I'll leave that up for you to check out. But I also wanted to give you a quick note that the Firefox Fission system is not on by default. You would have to go in and turn it on for yourself. So you go to about config and search for the word Fission, and then you can activate the entry there, and then it will turn it on so you can use this feature. I don't know why it's not on by default. Uh, maybe a resource thing or something. I don't know. Or maybe that's just like it's the early stage of testing, so that they didn't want to put it on default or whatever. I don't know. But it is really cool to see this new site isolation security architecture, the Firefox Vision system, because of you know it's great to see that it having this isolation built into the to it to avoid stuff like you know Meltdown Inspector and, and that sort of stuff but also the way they're doing it is super interesting with the domain approach rather than the tab approach and that sort of stuff that other browsers do. So very, very cool. If you want to check it out and learn more about this particular topic, I'll have a link in the show notes for the blog post about site isolation from Mozilla. Up next in the show, we have some really interesting news from the website Have I Been Pwned. It's going open source, which is just awesome. For those who are not aware, Have I Been Pwned? Or Hibup, you're not. I, I think it's just the letters. But I'm gonna go with Hibup from this point forward. Whenever time I say it that way, is a service to check if your email or phone number is in a data breach somewhere. So Hibup was created as a free resource for anyone to quickly assess if they have been part put in, at risk due to an online account of theirs having been compromised or pwned, as it were, in a data breach. So, have I been pwned? Is used quite a lot, as there have been reports that people check this site at a rate of almost one billion requests per month. That's a lot. Uh, so, this is v- heavily used and very important in terms of people being informed. And you can even like set like a notification to be informed when it if you if you are found if your email is found in one of these data breaches and that sort of stuff. So, it's really really interesting and an arguably very important service. So, Hibup. Collects data from all of the many personal security breaches that tend to happen rather alarmingly often. Uh, last year, we saw dozens of data breaches happening for a variety of different industries and that sort of stuff. And the how I've been P- have I been pwned founder Troy Hunt, who's a security expert and Microsoft regional director, explained why that he is open sourcing the code. And he says that the philosophy of H- have I been pwned has always been to support the community, and now. I want the community to help support Have I Been Pwned. Now, this is really cool, and it's been stated that this will take uh, some time to do because they're they're going to do different pieces at a time for the open sourcing because it is, an, is a complicated project that has been around for a while, so there's a lot to do. But I think it's pretty cool that the news for the site for it to become open source, and I think it makes a lot of sense for this to have this data. The software that you know aggregates this kind of data being open source as well is really cool. So this move towards open source, is great to see because it makes it more easily accessible to submit data for breaches and that sort of stuff. In fact, it's even been announced that HIPAA will now also receive compromised uh, passwords discovered in the course of FBI investigations. That's right. So the assistant director for cyber division of the FBI, Brian Vordren. Uh, says that we are excited to be partnering with the with Have I Been Pwned on this important project to protect victims of online credential theft, and it is another example of how important public-private partnerships are in the in the fight against cyber crimes. This is very interesting and important that the FBI is sharing this data because it can help people be more informed, which is great. You know. There's a there's a lot of different services that have you know announced that they're going that they have a, a breach, and sometimes it's something that may affect you, and you may not be aware because there are sometimes where these breaches are not necessarily public because they were done through investigations, and this way they can share that information more readily to everyone, which is great to see, especially with the open source factor of the code and everything happening this way. Uh, it is rather surprising still how many people use terrible passwords or reuse good passwords over and over making them terrible. But what can you do? Well, what you can do is get an account at bitwarden.com to get a password manager to store and create or auto-generate passwords so you can have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. And that just so happens that the This Week in Linux podcast is brought to you by Bitwarden. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And it allows you to have peace of mind because it gives you various different types of tools to be able to store your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords or passphrases, and even automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't even have to do that part either. And it does this across multiple different types of devices, whether it's your web browser extension or your mobile apps or your desktop application or even on the command line. You can use all of these tools on across all of these devices so you can have peace of mind and convenience, which is very important when it comes to a password manager. Now, what's really cool in addition to this is that Bitwarden seals this private data on your local end with intent encryption so that when it when it leaves your devices, you know that it's already encrypted. So there's only the only person who has access to your data is you. And that's a very important factor of this kind of software. And Bitwarden is the password manager that I use and trust because in addition to all of this, it's also 100% open source. That's right. It's 100% open source software, which, which means that the features and security and the infrastructure and that sort of stuff can be vetted and improved by the community. And they don't just stop there. They could stop there, but they don't. They also bring in third-party security firms to audit their code to make sure it is secure as possible. So go to bitwarden.com/dln to get started with your free account. But I think you want to. I think you want to check out the premium service because for less than a dollar per month. That's right. Just $10 per year. You can get a bunch of extra features like one gigabyte encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, and so much more. The Vault Health Reports is really, really cool because basically it will scan your data and make sure that if it sees anything that needs to be addressed, it will tell you about it and you can fix it up that way. Really, really great. So make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN and let you get, get peace of mind knowing that your passwords and other sensitive data are secure and encrypted and all that stuff. But also you can support a company that truly gets open source when you sign up for their $10 per year premium account. Let them know that you appreciate them supporting open source and supporting the This Week in Linux podcast. Again, go to bitwarden.com slash DLN and thanks again for Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Remember early when I talked about the command palette in Inkscape? Well, I saw something on the This Week in KDE blog that I just had to cover on the show because I'm so excited to see this being added, and that is the K command bar. So the K command bar is a... You know, an expert focused UI element related to the command palette concept and also similar to a HUD style pop up that was popularized by the Unity desktop environment from Ubuntu. So what it does is essentially it aggregates all the actions in a KDE app's full menu structure so that you can quickly activate features at the, I guess, speed of as fast as you can type, really. For those uh, unfamiliar with the Unity desktop environment from Ubuntu back in the day, this is essentially the HUD. What it allowed you to do was it basically took the elements of different applications in the menu bar and made it accessible through activating a shortcut and then typing in what you wanted to do. And then you could essentially navigate through the menus without having to actually know where they are so in this case you would be able to you know activate the kate application which is the text editor and be able to specify what you wanted to run and then just do it from the drop down options inside of the k command bar very very cool uh actually the the hud was one of my favorite reasons of, you know, favorite re- features of unity is one of the reasons I liked using unity. And it was one of the things that I think was the best thing about unity actually. So I'm excited to see this being added to a KDE in the way it is. And for those who are not familiar with the HUD system, but are familiar with KDE plasma, well, it's kind of like K runner inside of your applications. If you don't know what K runner is, well, I have exciting these news for you because if you want to check out plasma, then you should Uh, And if you are using it at any time, you should simply just, you know, activate the shortcut, which is alt space and K runner will pop up, allowing you to quickly open applications, run commands, search for files, do calculations, all sorts of stuff. And having this, it's kind of like having it in having K runner inside of your apps for your app itself, which makes me imagine what if command bar was integrated with K runner. Okay. I'm getting ahead of myself. Anyway, There are many applications these days that have something like this, which, like I mentioned in Inkscape, is called a command palette, which provides functionality like this on the application itself. But this one is really cool because what sets the K command bar apart is that once it has been rolled out, all Q-widgets-based KDE apps that use the KXML GUI framework, which is to say most of them, will automatically get this feature without having to implement it themselves. So whereas Inkscape had to build it out themselves, anything that is using this this framework for KDE apps will just get it when it rolls out, which is awesome. And as a bonus, if the action you were doing has a keyboard shortcut, it will display it to you in the list so that you can learn how to activate these features even faster in the future. I can't wait to see this starting to roll out in KDE apps because I mean, for those who are not aware, I'm a KDE fan, so therefore I use a lot of KDE apps, and I am so excited to see this stuff. And if you want to see more from the This Week in KDE blog, then you'll find links in the show notes. Up next in the show, I would like to introduce you to an interesting distribution called Floppinix. Flopinix is an embedded Linux distribution that fits on a single floppy disk. That's right, I said floppy disk. For those unfamiliar, based on the age of the individual listening, you may not be familiar, a floppy disk is a small card-like item for storage that is more commonly known at this point as the file save icon. The creator of FloppyNix, Christoph Joukowsky, is a game developer and I imagine a floppy disk enthusiast, has stated that this distro uses about one megabyte of storage, which gives the massive amount of available free space on the disk 400 kilobytes or about so. So you could use that for something, I suppose. Uh, This distribution can boot on a 486DX PC with 24 megabytes of RAM. And on an emulator, it boots almost instantly. And on bare metal, modern hardware, the only thing that limits the speed of the distro is of course the maximum read speed of a floppy drive. So there you go. I think this is an interesting... Uh, you know, just distribution to be able to build and make it work. Because I mean, reasons, I guess why, why Why else would it exist? Because it can. And that's awesome. So if you want to check out floppy nooks, and you happen to have a floppy disk, or just want to see how fast almost instantly is, you can check out the links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we have a new release of Laka. If you're not familiar, Laka is a really interesting, lightweight Linux distribution that transforms a small computer like a Raspberry Pi into a retro gaming console. And Laka 3.0 has been released, which is the first release in about a year or so, so there are quite a few things in the mix here. So... Uh, Laka is built on top of the RetroArch or RetroArch uh, emulator and is able to emulate a wide variety of systems and has some useful features such as automatic joypad recognition, rewinding, netplay, shaders. It's also fairly easy to set up because it works on many different types of hardware, including the Raspberry Pi, like I mentioned. So you just install it to the Pi, put some, co- some copies of some ROMs on the, on the Pi, plug in a controller, and you're good to go to get your retro gaming on. And it plays various different types of console games like uh, NES, Sega Genesis, Sony PlayStation, and others. And this latest release of 3.0 adds a lot of improvements. There's actually uh, Vulkan API enabled for AMD and Intel GPUs as well as the Raspberry Pi 4. It has supports for Joy-Con. It has updates to a lot of different things for like RetroArch has been updated to 1.9.3. There's actually been improvements to the screensavers system. There's also uh, a new uh, menu for pairing Bluetooth devices have been updated. Better searching and playlists. uh, Option to automatically enable game focus mode when running or resuming content. Lots of great stuff being added in this latest release. Uh, and there's there's so much more. There's even new uh, images, like 64-bit images for Raspberry Pi 4. There's also support for the Odroid Go Advanced and also even the Nintendo Switch somehow. I'm not sure how you can do that, but there are instructions available on the uh, in the show notes that I'll, I'll leave there. So if you want to do that for some reason, you can do it. Uh, there's also improvements to the uh, Lib Retro Cores. There's new support for uh, the Genesis Plus GX Wide, which is a widescreen-enabled core for the Sega Genesis and Mega, Mega Drive. There's also a new core for Stella, which is a port of the Atari 2600 VCS emulator and a bunch of other stuff. So if you want to check it out, I'll have links to all of this in the show notes below for Laka 3.0. Up next in the show and the last topic for today is the Glimpse image editor is going on hiatus. We've got some news from the Glimpse fork, uh, which is, if you're not familiar, Glimpse is a fork of GIMP. And one of the reasons they made the fork was to address the naming issues, which we'll get to later on in this topic. So Glimps has announced that they will be putting the project on hiatus. They have not re- ruled out a return, but for the moment, whether or not the project will return is unknown. And I wanted to talk about this topic for a couple of reasons. Uh, I have a bit of a history with GIMP. For those who don't know, in addition to my podcasting and video editing work, I've also been a designer for many years, so I've had a lot of experience with all sorts of different image manipulation tools, including GIMP and a variety of others. I've had quite a few debates with people over the years about GIMP and about the name as it being a hindrance to its growth, in my opinion. So when Glimpse was announced originally, my interest was piqued for sure. So there are also some really cool ideas created with Glimpse that they are working on, and they have uh, ultimately decided to not release most of this stuff because of the the decision to go on a hiatus, but they have upstreamed some of that code to GIMP, which is great to see, and the rest is available in an archive status on their GitHub repo. So there is also one thing that was really cool was that they were working on a new UI for the potential release of GIMPs in the future, which... I'll show you right now on the video version for those who are interested. I think it actually looks quite good. It's a nice, modern, clean style aesthetic to get to glimpse. Uh, this is not. This is just a mock-up of what it would be look like in the future, but uh, unfortunately it doesn't seem like it would be happening. So anyway, I just wanted to show you that there was more than just the name. They were working on a lot of other things, including the a uh, potential uh, new UI. So anyway, I, I do like the UI. It looks pretty good. Maybe GIMP will consider adopting it at some point. Who knows? But there was some criticism about the Glimpse project stating that all they were doing was just changing the name and mocking them for it. Now, it's certainly not accurate to say that's all they were doing based on them working on a new UI concept and all some other stuff like that. So uh, it's not exactly that. But the UI didn't come to fruition as planned. So uh, essentially, the Glimpse project decided to go on Hades because development halted. And since it was mostly one developer working on it towards the end of the project in their spare time, when they took a break from the whole thing, it kind of hit a wall. While certainly not ideal, this is a risk that open source projects take. If there aren't contributions, projects end. So let's talk about the name controversy and related to Glimpse and GIMP and that sort of stuff. This is a very heated subject. And in my opinion, there shouldn't really be any controversy. The name of the project should have been changed in the 90s, and it still should be changed today. This opinion is often attacked for being politically correct or some other term that means the same thing. But let's take the advice of everyone's favorite Vulcan, Spock, and use a logical approach to this topic. We're going to talk about what are the pros and cons of changing the name of GIMP itself. So, con, let's start with that list. Uh, First of all, the documentation would have to be changed. There's a lot of documentation, a lot of changes would be necessary. The domain and links will have to be adjusted to do redirecting to whatever new domain they use. There might be some legal things for the GNOME Foundation to deal with and packages and libraries might need to be changed and that sort of stuff. Other tasks related to rebranding and all that would have to be changed as well. But all of these things are, you know, annoying, sure, but relatively simple to do. Like, for example, changing the documentation, you know, search and replace all kind of thing could work in well, the database and that sort of stuff. and it, But it would still require a period of time where there would be some complications that would require some issues, right? But what about the pros? Are there pros, in fact? Well, in my opinion, there are a lot of pros. So let's, here's the list. Here's the list I could come up with anyway. So in my opinion, if they were to do this and they would change the name of GIMP, a massive amount of promotion from press outlets talking about the name change would happen the amount of the pro- like just the announcement of the project being changed and not even that what they're changing it to just the fact that they're going to change it that would get some imp- some attention and also when they do decide on what the new name is that would also get attention and then the first release of the project with the new name would get attention all of these have potential for getting more attention to the project and therefore more users and more contributors and all that sort of stuff plus Educational institutions could finally start contributing to it or creating courses and programs around the applications that were previously hindered by the optics of the name. We'll get to that in a second, but uh, businesses also could fund the project or even fund developers for the project to make it a true competitor because they would no longer be hindered by the optics of the name. Uh, Designers could start promoting it as a part of the resumes and, contributions could increase due to the community appearing more welcoming to those contributions rather than the reputation it's had over the years of being dismissive in a way. Now, to be clear, the Gimp project has had turnover a lot. Like a lot of different projects and developers have over the years have been in and out of the project quite a bit. And so it would like to it's not fair to say that the people that the, the reputation created over the years apply to the current team at all. So I just want to make that clear. What would stop the project from changing it? Well, I thought about this and I was thinking maybe I know some people argue that it's been too long and the name is too well known to change and that sort of stuff. Well, some of you might not know that along with that well-known status in many circles, it also has a reputation for not being a viable alternative. Now, we're going to get into the methodology a little bit here because there is a concept in image editing called non-destructive editing. Actually, this applies to video editing and audio editing and all sorts of stuff. Non-destructive essentially means that the changes made in the software will be available to change at any time and in any way. Destructive editing means once you make a change in the session, you can't undo anything and you can't, well, you pretty much lock in your changes at that point. It's, and it's not just that, but also layers don't always interact with each other properly in destructive editors, causing the need for making duplicate compositions inside of the, the project, having layers sitting on top of layers. So in order for you to go back 15 steps, you actually have to do all of those 15 steps again to get to that first one. So you have to go all the way back to the layer that you didn't do the change and then do the change and then everything else, do it all again. But in contrast... Non-destructive editing means that you can just change anything within those 15 steps and everything after that will automatically update itself according to whatever you changed it to. This means that the order you do something doesn't matter anymore. So, why is this important? Well, GIMP is a destructive editor. They have been working on making it more and more non-destructive, which is great, by the way. That is awesome, especially the work being done on Geggle. That is just a fantastic library. I'm so happy and excited to see Geggle, and I can't wait to play with the app when it gets there, but it's not there yet. And in the professional image manipulation world, destructive editors are a relic of decades ago. Unfortunately, most of what GIMP offers is destructive, and therefore kind of ignored by that industry. So would it be worth the change to the name? Well, there would be stuff that needs to be done as well, but in my opinion, when you consider the pros and the cons, I think it would be worth it. The project could get more contributors and businesses backing it, plus educational institutions could not only have courses for it, but also could help out in a variety of ways, maybe even grants or something, I don't know. Ultimately, there's no way to know if it would be good or not until it is tried, but otherwise... You know, it's just speculation based on my experience on the image manipulation field and industry and that sort of stuff. But I think it would be quite beneficial. I mean, I've had many companies tell me over the years that they would contribute to the, to the project and also they'd promote it and that sort of stuff if the name was changed because the name stops them from mentioning it in their marketing stuff and even talking about it overall because the name is, uh, comp- is problematic at best. So they don't really have incentive to do that. And I've also had design professors tell me that they would teach it if it was something else, named something else. And I think it would be greatly beneficial if Gimp decided to change its name. Now, with all that said, that's all the logical side, the Spock argument. Let's switch it up a bit and talk about the Captain Kirk approach. Just the opinion and emotional aspect of it or whatever you want to call it. I don't know. What is the problem with the name? Well, for those unfamiliar, the biggest issue is that it's a derogatory term towards disabled people. You didn't know that. Well, now you are. Now you're aware of it. But a large percentage of people may have heard the phrase having a gimp leg to refer to an injury or that sort of thing. This, this, is an, this phrase comes from the insult towards disabled people. So that's the origin of what it is. And it's been around for decades It's not a new thing that's been, you know, it's been, I think the last time I checked, you could, you know, trace it back to like 1800s, finding people using that term for that purpose. There's also another thing that this term references. That's not as bad technically speaking, but still not professional. And we'll just call it the Pulp Fiction edition. We'll just call it that. If you've seen that movie, then you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, well, search engines are a thing. I want to make this abundantly clear that the name of the application is a direct reference to the movie version as stated by the founders of the project. It's not an accident that it was named this. It was purposefully done to be problematic. It wasn't intended to be used uh, as a reference to the insult for disabled people, but it was intended to be problematic based on the movie. So why am I talking about this? Well, I think it's interesting to note because it's even more interesting to me that the Die Hard dedication to the problematic name exists because I I don't know why the community has this dedication to the name. Because when I was looking through the history of this, I learned something that I didn't know for a while, and it it was made as a tasteless joke by the people who started it, but they also left the project 24 years ago. That's right. This is a name that was made as a joke by people who left the project in 1997. Why is it so adamantly defended? They knew it was going to be controversial and haven't had anything to do with GIMP as a project for over two decades. Why is this bad joke of a name so important to keep? I I don't get it. I genuinely want to know if there is a valid reason to keep it other than the things I mentioned that would be annoying to deal with but ultimately wouldn't be overwhelming to the positives. There's way more positives in my opinion. Now, I don't. I didn't really think Glimpse would be the answer, but I always hope that GIMP would realize that changing the name would be beneficial so that they would, but I don't know. What do you think of this topic in general, and what are your thoughts about Glimpse going on hiatus? What are your thoughts about the name controversy I talked about here? Uh, did Learning about the fact that it was made to be problematic and they stopped working on it just after two years of being a part of the project, does that change your opinion on the name and that in this, on this topic in general, let me know what you think in the comments below or on the deal forum thread that will be posted and connected to this video and this episode. Uh, I'm very, very much interested and would love to know what you th- your thoughts are on this topic. So please let me know in the comments below or on the deal forum thread. Thanks for watching this episode of this week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show, we have Multiple ways to do it by going to uh, tuxdigitalcom slash contribute. You can find ways for PayPal, Patreon sponsors, and others at tuxdigitalcom slash contribute. And if you become a patron, you can join me during the live stream in the recording stadium inside of the skybox of the recording stadium to discuss stuff between topics or just to hang out every week after the show in the patron-only post-show. And you also can go to DLNStore.com to check out the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt, which is a shirt I designed to convey the message that whether or not you know Linux is there, it probably is. So go to DLNStore.com and check that out, as well as all the other great stuff at the DLNStore.com. And if you like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episodes of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of the shows on Destination Linux Network, as well as check out all the other great stuff on Destination Linux Network, including... The new Fedora podcast return that is also on DLN. So check that out. And just a reminder this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1700 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each and every week at dealinglive.com. And Just real quick, if you want to support the channel without having any additional calls to you, then check out the affiliates links at tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. You'll find links for Amazon or Humble Bundle and a bunch of other stuff. Check that out, tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tanell with the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux good news.